0: You're listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talinsky and Wes
1: Boss. Welcome to Syntax. My name is Wes Boss. I'm a full stack JavaScript developer. With me, as always, is Scott Talinsky. Hey. How you doing today, Scott?
0: I'm doing good. I'm uh, back from my first vacation and who knows how long. I don't know. When the last time I've had a legit vacation and so I went I went up to Winter Park I got some from 3 days of shredding in we had uh some fresh pow pow on every single day so I am feeling nice and uh, I'm feeling nice and sore but I'm feeling majorly mentally refreshed and ready oh, to yeah. go
1: Man, the pictures you posted so fresh sesh or whatever Scott said is snowboarding. Um, <laughs> the pictures you posted are unreal. Like I've I've only been snowboarding once and I like blacked out because I bailed so hard and I've <laughs> kind of been staying away from it since then. But the pictures with the mountains in the background looked amazing.
0: Yeah, and that's not far. That's like an hour and a half from our house. Just pop on over there for a little bit and and hit up some uh, mountains. It was it was an awesome weekend. Perfect weekend to go.
1: That's wicked. Oh, so today we are doing a potluck. We're going to be talking about all kinds of different questions that you've sent in. Things from uh, do you separate your backend and frontend to separate GitHub repos, default export, export versus named export, changing careers. Uh, we got all kinds of really good Good, juicy uh, treats for you here today. Today's episode <laughs> is sponsored by Sanity, which is a boy f- Bring your own front end. They are a hosted backend service um, that has some pretty cool features and a podcast called the Tech Meme Ride Home, which does a daily podcast that keeps you up to date on the tech industry. So let's jump on into it. You want to start us off with the first question there, Scott? Yeah.
0: So the first question is from Matt G., Do you prefer to have your back-end and front-end in separate Git repos or together? What are the trade-offs? Okay, so mine are together, but it's largely due because I, I use Meteor, which likes to combine them, and I found there to be quite a bit of benefits for me personally is that one command builds everything for me. So I just do NPM start, it runs the Meteor command, Meteor starts my API and builds my front end and it just gets everything going for me. So I have one command that gets the whole project up and running. I don't have to separate out my API from my front end, right? It's all one thing. Uh, Another thing I love about keeping them in the same repo and the same everything is that I can use the same tooling. So I use the same Babel configs, same prettier configs, all that same stuff and I only have one file for it, both backend and frontend, and therefore I like never even think about that stuff. So the code style on the API for me is the exact same as the code style in the front end in terms of I'm not, I don't have to use the require syntax or any of that stuff. So I like this more unified feel for things. Now that said, I, I tried to set the same kind of setup up using Webpack once. And I wanted to pull my hair out. It was very frustrating. <laughs> so I think it was a product of just how easy Meteor makes that, this sort of combination of back-end and front-end uh, that makes it really nice for me.
1: Yeah, I also use, there's this term that people use. It's called a monorepo. Uh, and a monorepo is that you have one repository for your entire... Software platform, and we're we're approaching at a very simplistic level where you have a front end, and a back end. Whereas like companies like Google and Facebook or whatnot, they have like probably thousands of different services, each which have their own dependencies, each which have their own often config files inside of them. However, they keep it in one big repo, and Google is famous for this. Where if you want to make a change to Google. Like the entire company, it's apparently just one huge repository. I've heard of these companies having to take things like Git and Miracle and how do you say that? Miracle? Miracle? Mercurial? Mercurial. Mercurial. I always goofed that up.
0: I don't know if that's right either. And they literally have to like
1: fork it because their code base is gigs and gigs and gigs uh, of history uh, in order just to to fork that thing. So it's kind of interesting. I like to use a monorepo myself. There's lots of tooling out there. If you have many, 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 something like Babel, which has thousands of plugins, uses a monorepo often to keep multiple plugins inside of a single, single, single GitHub repo. But I just have a front end and a back end. I like to keep it all in one. My history stays there. I can have one set of config files. I can often put a like a very light layer of like a, like a start command, which will go into both of those mm. folders and start them on up and whatever it is that I need to do. So I don't have to have two different tabs open in my node course. We use something called concurrently, which will run both the Webpack as well as the node server uh, to run it. So it's kind of cool. I prefer that. Obviously there's upsides and downsides to, to each of them, but I prefer the monorepo approach.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a cool thing. So next question here is from John Mayer. That is probably not your real name, but if it is, <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, the question is: In web dev, in web dev, what's the difference between a freelancer and an independent contractor? It's Price. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and the answer is it's really not not a whole lot, really. I mean, it, they they can mostly be referred to the same thing as a freelancer, you could just call yourself an independent contractor. At the end of the day, that's like legally what you are. You're getting paid independently as a contractor. But I think the way that it's most commonly used to to talk about somebody who is either working for themselves with many clients or they're working for a larger company. For instance, when I worked for uh, the Ford's advertising agency, Team Detroit. I was an independent contractor for them. Uh, I was paid as a contractor. Uh, they did not take out taxes for my paycheck. I had to be responsible for my taxes and stuff like that. I was paid as a contractor, although I was under a like two-year contract and had a essentially a salary or an hourly wage with them. So I didn't take on additional clients. That was my only bit of work. I was expected to be in the office and expected to be working for them, you know, eight hours a day.
1: Yeah, that's certainly how I see it as well, is that a consultant will often take on large projects for a single company at a time. This is not always true. As a freelancer, it seems more of the, I don't know, I feel like it comes more from like the design or artistic point of view, where you might have a couple different clients. But there, at the end of the day, there is no difference between freelancer, contractor or consultant. In Canada, they're starting to crack down on companies who hire these full-time contractors. Like there's been people who worked for a company for four years as a contractor. I'm doing air quotes here. And the government comes back and says, no, that's called an employee. And you have to pay taxes on that employee. And you have to give them health benefits and and all of that kind of stuff. Because a lot of times people will hire contractors and just skirt around having to deal with the headache of HR and and taxes and and payroll and stuff like that. And just you deal with it yourself.
0: Yeah. And sometimes there's agencies, the recruiting agencies that will actually pay you a salary and handle your benefits and handle all of that stuff. And you're still contracted through the parent company, but you're a full time employee of this recruiting agency, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've certainly done as well. Like lots of my clients in the past have just set me up an email address at their company And you have everything that the employees have, except for you generally get paid a little bit more because you there's the possibility that when things get slow, you're cut. Right. Yeah, it's risky. And, and they don't yeah. have to pay you severance or anything like that. So it's a little bit more risky for me going in there because I know as soon as they don't need me, they can stop paying me. Uh, yeah. And they don't have to, to pay me anything at the end of the day. Uh, but because of that, you get you demand a much higher uh, amount per hour per, per contract.
0: Yeah, my biggest salaries have all been contract. And and sometimes it's just, you, you can look at your options and say, hey, well, it's a hot market. I'm going to be uh, able to have a job in two years via my skills. So therefore, maybe it's it's worth it to take this sort of opportunity.
1: Yeah, yeah, and at the same point, if you're looking at doing that, you should also weigh like you have to save for your own retirement. A lot of employers do. I think in the in the states it's called a four hundred and one k. Is that what your retirement savings is called?
0: It is called a 401k. There
1: you go. So in a, in, in Canada, it's called the RRSP, a registered mm. retirement savings plan. And it's the same thing where a lot of companies will match a certain amount or however much you put into your own, they'll match or they'll pay like 30% as much as you pay. That's huge because um, it's like getting, I know like Google does this, you, you can get an extra 20, 30, 50, hundred thousand dollars a year just into your retirement savings because the company is is matching it for you.
0: Yeah, definitely definitely something to think about.
1: Oh, and parental leave, that's a, that's a huge one as well. Ooh, uh, that's one yeah. thing you don't get as a contractor as well. So it's important to think about that as well. If you uh, wanna take some time off or you have to take some time off when you have kids, it's important to, to think about that because then you don't have anyone that's willing to, to pay or match for you.
0: Yeah, and you lose those bennies.
1: Those be- <laughs> bennies, that's great. All right, next question we have. Thank you, John Mayer, that was good. <laughs> Next question is from JLo. I think we've answered this before, but it's a hot topic. So we'll go we'll go over it again. Default export versus named export. This is with a JavaScript module. You can export one thing as a default export and as many things as you want as named exports. The difference is, is that when you import something that has been exported as a default, you can name it whatever you want. So you could export default Wes. And then you could import it as cool guy or dude or anything you want. Right. Whereas named exports, you have to know the name of the thing that as it was exported from the file. So sometimes that requires a little bit of tooling to scan the file and figure out what that is. Sometimes that's much better, though, because the tooling will scan the file for you and it will automatically suggest what your imports Uh, Should be. So there's camps on either side of it saying that you should only use named exports. There's other people saying like default exports are handy because you don't have to know what it's called. I'm of the opinion of just use default exports for the main thing that that file exports. Like if it's a React component, I'll just export the React component from there. And if there's other things like multiple functions, multiple libraries, multiple helpers, I export those as named. And I've never had a, a issue. I've run into that, but I certainly see uh, both sides of it.
0: Yeah, I pretty much everything for me is a default export unless it's like a you know, my styled components, utilities, like you said, more than one thing in a particular file. If I have a a file with several functions, they're all gonna be named exports. And actually it'd be really helpful for testing, right? Just export everything as a named export. You can import whatever, test it up, get all that good and going. Cool, so uh, yeah, let's get into the next one here, which is from Johnny Sins. Uh, Johnny Sins is asking, I'm looking to change careers, but I'm 41 this year is it too late no i don't know i don't think so. it's ever too late i mean this stuff all it takes is dedication and practice to to get and age shouldn't matter all that should matter is like what you're able to create as a developer and the stuff you're able to do and produce i interviewed for a job in tokyo once and the guy who interviewed me gave me this like really great story because they were basically turning me down from the job and they turned me down from the job because I couldn't speak Japanese, not because I couldn't dev. It was, it was, it was actually a flash dev job, which was going to be interesting, but he was so interesting. He was maybe 50 something. And he was like, you know what? I don't want you to get discouraged because like, this was a good interview. And he's like, when I was 45, I was mowing lawns for a living. (laughs) He's like, I was the landscaper and uh, I just decided I wanted to do development. I wanted to do all this stuff. And like now he's the boss of a major agency. He's like, well, I just decided I was going to go for it. And he went for it. And uh, you, you can make these changes at any time. You can do this stuff. All that matters is if you have the skills to pay the bills. Do you know what I mean? You just have to get that practice in, work hard, and you can do it.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that 41 is is too late as well. This stuff moves so quickly that the beauty of it is that if you jump into the stream and you sort of hit your wagon to whatever is moving quickly, whether that's uh, React or Vue or uh, whatever framework comes out in the next couple of years, then you can get up to speed and you can become an expert at that thing fairly quickly. I also think that uh, like I look back to when I started when I was really young and it it took me so long because I didn't have any of the soft skills that are oh so important that uh, many older people often do have time management, communication, problem solving, just like a general attitude towards being able to approach problems that we have in software development. I had to like learn all of those things very slowly through some painful experiences before I could could actually get into it. And I feel like I've even talked to people who run agencies and they say, we prefer to hire older developers just because they just lived a lot of life and they they are much more able to to handle any problems that come their way.
0: Yeah, definitely. And some problems that you might have if you are working on front end code, you might be running into where the heck do I store my data? Because that's definitely a problem that is sort of in the modern headless space that we live in. And. Well, one of the coolest solutions to that that we really love over here at the podcast is Sanity over at sanity.io.
1: Yeah. So Sanity calls themselves Structured Content Done Right. We call them a BOIF, which is bring your own front end. Um, and the idea behind this is that you, you sign, I love that acronym, you sign up for uh, sanity.io. And you automatically get this backend where you can start to structure out your content. So you can create all of your data types. You can create all the fields that are inside of those data types. You can create relationships between those data types. You can create different types of inputs for those data types. You can also upload your own React components if you have a specific type of input. Maybe you you want to have a special type of media uploader that is specific to your business. You can just create your own input, which is kind of cool because like it, it really... It bridges this like self-hosted versus totally custom. You can kind of do both with this. Um, and then the idea is that you you come at it with anything, React, Angular, Gatsby, any, any front-end service that you want to do, and you consume uh, their query API and, and just pull in all of the data. You, you let them take care of all of the security, all of the doing real-time, all of the scaling up and down. If this thing just blows up because it's on front page of Hacker News, no problem there. So if you are looking to build uh, a website, web app, anything where you need a backend, someone can log in and manage all of the data. You take care of the front end building it out. Check out Sanity at sanity.io forward slash syntax. And if you use the sanity.io forward slash syntax, they're going to double what you get on the free plan. You can sign up still zero dollars, no credit card required, and uh, you can start trying it out today. So thanks so much to Sanity for sponsoring nice
0: cool yeah yeah all right next one from ken from maryland is from from maryland is not his last name it's probably where he's from the question is have you guys made much use of multi-column layout if so only for text or have you come up with any interesting out-of-the-box uses it seems like something you could do a lot with but i haven't seen it used very often now for those of you who don't know there's a css property that allows you to specify columns and this was Uh, pre css grid this was pre flexbox this is one of the things that came in i believe in like the css three era of stuff and uh, one of the cooler things that it allowed you to do was sort of newspaper style layouts where the text automatically flows from one column to a next It, it differs from something like css grid in that you don't have your items individually in in different columns you're you're your items flow from one column to the next, aka if you're resizing the browser and the height of the container is staying the same and the width is changing, the text is gonna go and snake onto the next line. Now, I've actually used this to do a Pinterest-style layout, but it only works if you have, like, a select amount of items, right? You have... 10 items or something and you could tell it all right just filter into three columns and, and it will create the pinterest-esque style that's not anywhere near like the exact same because the the actual content order doesn't exactly fall in line correctly with the dom but no mm, i have used it in the past for just multi-column text but really that's it and i haven't been using it since Flexbox and grid really came out of the scene
1: yeah i think css Columns is often underlooked. I think it's like the it's it's a buddy that goes along with Flexbox and Grid and they're not competitors. So it's very perfect for text that needs to be in multiple columns. It will take care of wrapping. There's a bunch of break before and break after properties you can use in CSS. So that if you if you want like an image to always break onto the next column or break before, that's great. If you want that Pinterest layout, this is currently the only way you can kind of do it. You can do a CSS grid if you have a, or you can do it with flexbox. Sorry, if you have a fixed height, but that's almost never the case. CSS grid is not made for Pinterest style layout, and the the downside to CSS columns is that the layout of the items goes top to bottom. So let's picture we have um, nine items and three columns. It will do first column one, two, three, second column four, five, six, and third column six, seven, seven, eight, nine. (laughs) And uh, how do you count? I'm trying to picture this now. And the downside to that is most people want item one, column one, item two, column two, item three, column three, and then to start again, Item four, column one. And I actually asked uh, Rachel Andrew, who is who worked on the CSS grid spec and uh, knows everything about CSS. I'm like, how do you do Pinterest style layout in CSS grid? And she says, that's not what it's for. That's what CSS columns are for. It would be really neat to have something like a column direction property in CSS where you can decide how the layout very much like Flexbox and grid have columns versus rows you should be able to control how you add items to these different columns currently not possible you can do it with a little bit of math if you know how many items you have and you know how many columns you have you can sort your array in such a way that the items are added in that specific order Uh, but you still have to know (laughs) that you still have to know the height you still have to know the height of your elements and it's it's a pain in the butt so yeah it's cool. I, I think it's, it's super underused, and I would check it out uh, if you've never used it before. Work. It's very well supported. It's been it's, it's been, been in for a while for now. Yeah, forever. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's go to Can I use real quick? Been in since IE ten, and everywhere else has had it forever. So yeah, it's been around for years now. Cool. Next question we have here is from Alex Luong Long. He says, no problem for mispronouncing my last name. Thank you, Alex. Hi, Wes and Scott. I have a question for you. I have a question for Wes, and I guess Scott as well, because I asked him this before we started. As you publish your course's source code on GitHub, what do you think about people who use that to learn instead of buying your courses? Is it an intentional decision or is it a compromise you're willing to make? Just wondering. Thanks so much for the podcast. So, what this is asking is that all of the code for all of my courses, paid and free, I put it up on GitHub. And when I'm building the course, I also put it up on GitHub. And a lot of people ask me, like, well, aren't you sort of like, Given throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Are you giving it a, a away, your secret sauce for free? And I think no. I think that if you can learn everything that it is to learn in one of my courses, without having to watch the course, just by looking at the code that I put to GitHub, then you are a fantastic developer and you don't need my courses in, in that regard. So I've never worried about that. There certainly are lots of people who read through the code or just need to like figure out how I did a specific piece of authentication or or rolled the JWT and they just jump into it like, oh, I know Wes covered this in the course. I didn't buy it, but I'm just gonna, gonna pull it out of there. And I'm happy when people do that because... Like, I think that's the whole idea behind this amazing community is that you can open source. Like, I don't have a lot of libraries to open source, but I do have tons and tons of example content, which is helpful for people to learn and to pull out and put into their own application. And I'm happy when people do that. So that's fine. And then I also get huge benefit out of having it on GitHub open for free because it's often referenced. The code is often pulled and put into other projects and referenced back. Many people vet the code. So before they buy it, they're like, does this West guy even know what he's talking about? Answer is probably not. But I'm going to go on GitHub and read through the code just to make sure. Often like a, a more senior developer on the team will vet the course first. And part of that will be them reading through the code that is in the finished f- folders and making sure that it is of quality that they would like to see implemented in their own company. So that that's really important as well. Also just little bugs. Sometimes I will spell something wrong or sometimes I will have like a tiny little error in in the code and having someone who's in the headspace taking the course and realizes the bug, having them send a quick pull request to fix it where it doesn't ripple through and break the rest of the course is so easy. And I really appreciate that. And then also it just goes like trending. Like I've got lots of stars and stuff on my courses. So Often what will happen is when I launch a course, it will go into like trending GitHub repos and that's free advertising for all of my courses. So very intentional that I I open it up. Um, And then I asked Scott about this as well. Do you do
0: this? Sometimes, I don't usually. Not for any necessarily reason other than that's just how I haven't been doing it. Uh, It's definitely something that I would explore. If if I get a bunch of messages after this that says, oh, we want your code on GitHub, then no worries. I'll put it up on GitHub.
1: Yeah. I also like being able to like people often ask me like, hey, Wes, how do you handle errors with the think await?" And I'll always link to that example in my express uh, node course of error handling. It's just nice to be able to have everything open and and be able to just link to it and show people this is how I've done it. So interesting question. Next one, I'm going to let you try to. To do the Oh, the yeah. Name here. I
0: wrote down this pronunciation, but uh, this this user did not send a pronunciation. This is my own attempt at this. <laughs> so uh, if this is wrong, please let me know. This is from Accentioy, Alexandru. I think I I think I did that pretty good, if that is correct, at least. This, uh, this question is, when is a certification needed for both jobs and side projects? Mm, my answer is never. I don't think unless you're the job that you're applying for specifically says in the job description that you need a certification. I have never had a certification in anything other than setting up skiing bindings. (laughs) And that was when I was 16. (laughs) I installed ski bindings and I needed a certification. No, I in web development, I've never had any certifications. I've never taken any tests. I've never paid to take a test, which is really sort of the angle. If somebody says, oh, you got to pay $200 to take this test and become Magento certified, uh, I would go ahead and say that's probably a big old waste of money. Uh, because usually, the this is the second time I'm saying this in this episode, if the proof is in the pudding here, like if you can have those skills uh, to do the work, then I don't think anybody is going to be like, well, what about that $200 certification you didn't pay to take? So I, I don't think certifications are a big deal. And I would almost... Uh, say don't do them unless it is explicitly required and if it is explicitly required see if you can get the company that make you doing it pay for it right say hey pay for this thing and I'll do it I'll get certified
1: yeah it the certification is such a weird thing and you see a lot of companies coming out with like degrees and certifications in specific web tech and I think it's because you need to appeal to other industries that are on there because like I often get asked, if I can make a certification for LinkedIn because people want to flex on LinkedIn with their node course or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or um, I have certificate of completion. And just because people need those from their company, like in, in their reimbursement strategy, it says, if you pay for a course, you must complete it and show that you have successfully done it with a certification. Like, it's just part of the getting it. So I have to create this like cheesy little certification, which is funny because a lot of people print them out and put them in frames and put them on their wall. Like they're like, it's like an MBA or something like that. And that's really weird because like we all know listening to this, that it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything to you, but it means a lot to people who are potentially hiring uh, you. So I would say don't ever pay for one, but a lot of places like myself that, that give the course, they will give you some piece of paper just because of these reasons.
0: Yeah, we have certifications as a pull request in the level up TUTS right now. I just haven't I haven't attached it correctly. So
1: I haven't haven't merged it in.
0: I haven't merged it in for good reason, but they're coming for that as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think as myself as a web developer, I know I would never go and get a certification in in it. Because like why? Because I've taken web development courses at school. Like I took two or three and they were a joke. They were and, a and joke. I know. As as like if I was hiring someone and they said, like, I have a certification in VS Code and I'd be like, oh, yeah, right. Like, come on, that's that that probably means that means nothing to me as a hiring. What I want to see is proof in the pudding. What did you make? Uh, how, How good are you at being able to build something with with web technologies?
0: Yeah. And I'm also pretty sure my wife, who has an actual Ph.D., if I were to have a certification on the wall or something, I'm pretty sure she would just be like, "Come on, like, yeah, I actually worked hard for this, and uh, you took a, a, you paid to take a test." So yeah, yeah.
1: there's also like, there's this like Google Developer Experts, which people on Twitter, I often get misled that people work for Google yeah. in their Twitter bio because they're like, "I work for at Google Developer Expert," or "I'm a at Google Developer Expert," and I'm not, I'm not sure what a Google Developer Expert is. <laughs> But I know that a lot of people have it. I'm just on the website here. It doesn't it's kind of flaky as to what you actually you get. Acknowledgement by Google invitation to our yearly expert summit, Mm -hmm. access to Google teams, invitations to exclusive projects with Google, access to global network of professionals and invitations to event. That That sounds like the same two things said four or five times. I don't know. I might be trashing this and it actually is extremely valuable for your career. If you are a Google developer expert, tweet us at Syntax FM. Tell us, besides being able to put at Google in your Twitter bio, what benefit do you get from this?
0: Yeah, I'm interested. One way that you can stay up to date and current rather than having to do certifications is to (laughs) listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast.
1: Yes. So Tech Meme Is a podcast sponsoring our podcast. So what they are is a daily 15 to 20 minute long podcast, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern. They run through what's going on in the tech industry. So everything from hardware to software as a service to Facebook and Google and whatever's going on in our tech industry. And uh, it's kind of cool because you could just throw this thing on uh, listen to it for 10, 15 to 20 minutes or seven and a half to 10 minutes. You've listened to it at 2x every single day and sort of keep up with with what's going on. You don't have to read a whole bunch of blogs. You don't have to be on Twitter for four or five hours a day. Uh, you can get up and running. So it's called the Tech Meme Ride Home. If you just go to your podcast app, Overcast, iTunes, whatever it is you're using, search for Ride Home and subscribe to it. You can also, they have an entire publication at techmeme.com. You can also read that as well. So thanks so much to Tech Meme for sponsoring.
0: Yeah, super cool. All right, cool. Let's get into this next one. How do you deal with spammers Filling out forms. This is from Alex Wendt. And thank you, Alex, because I would have pronounced your last name Wendt. Wendt. There's a lot of extra <laughs> letters in here. So thank you, Alex. Yeah, so there's a, there's several options for this kind of strategy. And sometimes if you're working in like a CMS, like if you're working in WordPress or Drupal, sometimes their uh, contact form things are just going to do all these for you. So you don't even have to think about it. Uh, but one of the most common ones is what's called a honeypot field derived from the, uh, you know, got your hand in the honeypot sort of thing, sort of a situation where they set up a, a, a situation that is like designed to fail for the wrong type of person. So if you have an hidden input field that is known as a honeypot, the chances are the user will not see this input, but the robot will see the input and fill it in. And then you can say, hey, if this input is filled in, then therefore the thing that's trying to submit this is in fact a robot and I should not allow this to go in. Because again, if the input is hidden, there's not a whole ton of ways for people to go ahead and find that input other than diving into the, the DOM and, and enabling it themselves. So uh, that's definitely one way to do it.
1: Yeah, that's I think that's the very basic. I don't even know if that works all that well anymore, because like a, you could if you're a spammer, just spin up a like a phantom JS or Google headless. Or Google don't Chrome give them headless. ideas,
0: man. You're and you're 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 leaking the source.
1: Yeah, there's some (laughs) podcasts I was listening to where they're talking about how like the bad guys have just as many smart people working for them as the good guys. And uh, it's just this constant battle between the brains trying to fight each other. So I I don't know if that hidden form field really works all that much anymore. So what you have to do past that is like the next step is asking a secret question. What is two plus eight? And uh, you'd be able to only a human or is water wet? Yes or no. That's fairly simple. But again, with machine learning, people are being able to answer those. Or if it's a huge operation, you can easily farm those questions out to what's the Amazon Mechanical Turk. You can easily get those answered for a a cent or two um, by someone who is just like running through all these. So that's an option as well. If that's still being defeated, I, I talked to somebody at a. Uh, a conference recently, who ran a like an email form software as a service, and he said like ninety eight percent of all of their submissions are spam, and they have hundreds of thousands of clients, so they just get millions and millions a day Jeez. of these spam submissions. So he's like almost entirely everything that comes through is spam. So if that's the case, you have to reach for the big guns um, and the kind of the two big ones that most people rely on is first Cloudflare will detect bots. So if someone's hitting your website repetitively or if they are sneakily coming from known IP addresses, Cloudflare will just block them and shut them down. Or And then the big one is uh, ReCAPTCHA, which is the Google. You just have to type in that terrible like R8BD mm-hmm. and then it wouldn't work and then it wouldn't work and it wouldn't work. And it's the most frustrating thing ever filling up those ReCAPTCHAs. I hate them. It's gotten significantly better in the last, what, like two years, year Sometimes,
0: sometimes it got significantly worse. Yeah, I'm on a VPN, so I get a lot of those for even like Googling. It'll be like, oh, your IP has got weird behavior. And I'm like, "Okay, well, it's not my I mean, it's the VPN. But so then you have to click the ones that are like click all the ones with the stop sign. And then you click all the ones with the stop sign. It's like, no, they're
1: like self-driving car dirty work. And they never
0: work. They never work. It's like find all the cars, found them. No, you didn't. All right. Do it again. Find some more cars.
1: Find a stop sign.
0: My God, drives me nuts.
1: (laughs) So that's probably your best way. I don't run a VPN very often. And that's that button. I am not a robot. That's Google's Recaptcha. And if it detects that you are likely a bot via some underground magic, it will throw up one of those. Show me where the cars are or answer these questions or click all the cats. uh, And it will it'll send you through a few of those. So that's how you have to do it. Unfortunately, like the good old days, you used to be able to just fire up a PHP script and send an email. Those days are done just because of spam. Mm -hmm. Um, You absolutely have to use some sort of form field validation um, or or CAPTCHA on there. Yeah.
0: Word. Cool. So the next one is from Paige Needringhouse. And uh, thank you, Paige. It also gave us really good pronunciation. Uh, That was one that I would have also had trouble with. So thank you, Paige. Uh, This question is, hey, Wes and Scott, love your podcast. Well, thank you, Paige. I was wondering if you could better explain what a slug is. I've heard the term thrown around a number of episodes, and I don't really know what it means. Thanks. Okay, slug. Uh, slug is a, a concept that is derived for SEO purposes and being able to easily access content via the URL. So I don't know if you you have used WordPress or Drupal, but a lot of times in these systems, you know, they give you a really basic URL that's like the ID of the post. So let's say you have a post, like a blog post. It could be like forward slash post forward slash one, two, three, right? That's the ID. And then in that ID is then used in the database to look up the post content and generate the actual page, right? Well, a slug is a, basically and a, an indicator that can be in the URL that is attached to the post, and it's typically something that you want to be URL-friendly. The most common way to do a slug is to do a lowercase hyphenated version of the page title. That way, instead of a forward slash post forward slash ID, your URL ends up being forward slash post forward slash hello hyphen world. Again, it's better for SEO. The, the search bot can read that. Those keywords end up being searchable. It also is way easier for your users to type in if they're typing in something Uh, rather than throwing in an ID. It's going to be the page title, the post title, whatever. So a slug is basically something that's derived from the title and you can have these generated. I actually save my slugs in the database. Do you save yours in the database when you use them?
1: Yeah, you can't like so if someone's visiting your website via a slug, you need that slug needs to be unique enough or it has to be unique so that it can yeah. look that up in the database. And if you don't have the slug saved in your database, there's going to be no way for you to find that post because the slug is not attached to it in the database. You can't run like a show me posts that would the title would look like this if it were slugged. And then you also- Well, you could.
0: It would just might not be super reliable. It would be extremely
1: reliable. slow. Yeah, because you would have to run a conversion on your entire database, keep yeah. that in memory and then find it. Right. So, And, and it's
0: indexable if it's in your database, right? Actually,
1: I, that's, I listened to the CodePen podcast once and they said that they had perf issues where they were looking up people by the email address they signed up with, which will sometimes have capitals in it, and then the email address that they have on file. And if they were looking up the email address with someone's capitals, then they would have to convert the entire database to... Lowercase first, so they ended up just saving two versions of the email address: the one they signed up with and the lowercase version. Yeah, and that sped it up quite a bit. So I guess that it is possible, but I always save them in the in the database if if we go that way. When we're talking about React with slugs as well, because it's forward slash post forward slash hello world, you'll often need something server side that will take those URLs and not just like what's happening on most servers is just looking for a folder called post and inside of that a folder called hello world that's actually how a lot of static site generators work as well and you need something like a apache config or nginx config that will just point people to the index and and run your react app and pick up the pick it up from there on out so that's what a slug is i think scott did an awesome job at explaining it next question we have here from chuck reynolds i'm going to i'm going through some currency conversion stuff for a project. Uh, what would you recommend to use for international conversions? And then how would you handle input string to number persistence, including currencies that are comma delimited? So the c- currency is, is one of the pains in in web development. It c- sort of comes along with time zones because there's this whole idea of you've got different languages and different currencies, but the language of the browser is not necessarily correlated to what currency they're shopping in because they might speak one language but live in a country that has a different currency. So that's frustrating. And then formatting it and dealing with the fact that uh, in North America, we use decimals. We use decimals for like half a number. What do you call that? <laughs> a, uh, for a fraction? Int, integer. <laughs> for a half a number. And, and other other countries, they, they're the opposite where it's they use commas for those. So it's, it's frustrating. So I'll, I'll tackle that first bit. Um, I used to use a API called fixer.io. And what fixer.io does is it goes off to, I think, the World Bank or something like that and scrapes the exchange rates. And then it gives you this nice, clean API to interface with it. They recently went paid. So there was like a rate limit on it. But the thing about it is that it just scrapes free data. So there's a whole bunch of drop-in replacements that are available for fixer.io. I'm using exchange rates api.io, but I think there's like four or five different alternatives that have popped up that are totally free. They ask you to cache the the values when when possible. So there's that uh you can you can use that to pull in the the latest rates. Although if I was like running a business, I would probably scrape those directly myself because I wouldn't I wouldn't rely on some random dude on the Internet who built this currency conversion API to not screw you. And like mm-hmm. if you're selling a car or something like that, they could just change the exchange rate and then they they would they would get you on that. Other things to think about is that if people are buying in different currencies, like my courses are in U.S., but if like somebody buys it in Canadian, then some, the, the exchange rate is different. Because your credit card will put on an extra percent or two for currency conversion. So that's a bit of a pain. So for that reason, I never show the cost in local currencies. I just show what the cost is in USD and and people can figure it out from there. Although I've I've been considering showing it, though, because some people have asked for that.
0: Yeah, I don't do much of this. Uh, It's something I probably should be getting into more. But no, I, I mean, I think you nailed it.
1: Yeah. Uh, in terms of how do you show it, there's a really good API in the browser, um, format, and you can pass it uh, both the, uh, like a language code and, and set it to currency and which currency. So you set it to which currency you'd like to display it as, as well as like where in the world are they coming from? So it'll take both of those and it will show the proper currency code, whether it's a yen or a euro or U.S. dollars. Um, and then it will it will do the um, decimals and commas appropriately for whatever language that person is is currently viewing it in. So that's really good. The API is fairly well supported. In node, it's a little bit weird because it doesn't come along with all of it by default. So if you do need it on the server side for lots of different languages and lots of different currencies is some legwork that needs to be done in order to include all of those. I assume that the dictionary for how to handle all of these different currencies and languages is fairly large, and probably for that reason, Node doesn't bundle it by default, mm. uh, although I'm not, not totally sure about that.
0: Internationalization is hard. Um, I think we yes. actually want to do an episode we're going to try to maybe get an expert on or something like that, but the internationalization is certainly not easy.
1: Yeah, I asked on, I asked on Twitter the other day, what are some problems with doing... language or a website or a web app in different languages, but also languages that read right to left and also just things like like local, like if you're running Airbnb, just things like somebody said tipping. I work for like Just Eat or something like that. One of these like food delivery companies. Tipping is different from from locale to locale. Some people tip in Canada. We have to tip. But in Europe, most people don't tip at all. And there's just all these different things that you have to take into account, which it just increases the complexity and German words are very, very long and Chinese words are very, very short, different design trends from different country to country. So I'm in chats with somebody right now that we're going to bring on the show to sort of talk about that because that's just something I've never had to do myself.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, um, I, ha- I had some experience with this myself and it is uh, our system was e- elaborate, prone to breaking and uh, not exactly the most fun to work in, especially once you get right to left. So, yeah, definitely some interesting stuff going on there.
1: So that's all the questions we have here today. Thanks so much for everyone for um, submitting them. If you have a question you'd like us to cover on a future show, please go to syntax.fm. And there is a button in the top right hand corner that says ask a potluck question. You can go ahead and submit a question, however long or short. Some of them are really long and we will just turn them into entire episodes. So feel free to dump whatever you want into that button that you have there. Should we move into some sick pics?
0: Yeah, I I have a sick pick here that's a little cheap little Amazon thing. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of devices and a whole bunch of different the Torx screws and stuff like that. I'm, I'm doing a lot of hard drive disassembly right now because over the years you acquire so <laughs> many hard drives and it's like, I don't know if my social security is on them or whatever. I just want to open them up, take the disks out and, and destroy them, right? So I, I don't want my, my personal information out there for that to be accessible. So I bought this really cheap little screwdriver set off of Amazon and it's 23 bucks and includes basically... Every single device or anything that they're like really branding it as like, oh, you want to repair computer devices like get this kit. It's 65 bits. So um, every little bit you could possibly imagine, really nice screwdriver, a little miniature screwdriver, like a prying device so you can pry things open like phones or or computers.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Can I interrupt you right now? I'm going to tell everyone go and buy. One of these plastic spudger tools right now, because if you ever need to open any sort of electronics and you try to use a butter knife, you will butcher that thing and regret it. So just have it on hand for when you need to open something. I use mine all the time.
0: Yeah, so this this kit is great, and I've already used it a whole bunch of different ways. I, I even needed I needed to fix Courtney's glasses the other day, and the bit was there—a nice little tiny bit to fix some glasses. So uh, you can't beat having a really flexible screwdriver set like this around. Again, it's got like sixty-five bits in it, and it's twenty-three bucks. These things are really great, and uh, I'm happy to have this around. I've been using it a ton.
1: Awesome. I'm going to. I've been finding some gems of YouTube. Channels lately, so I'm gonna pick another one, and this one is called Technology Connections, and it's this guy who goes into a lot of vintage technology and explains how they worked, and I love it Mm. because I I just grew up with it and assumed that it worked, but then he goes into like, let me just go through a couple examples of my favorite videos. So the first one I ever watched was LED traffic lights. This is actually not vintage, but he said there's a problem with LED traffic lights because. What happens is that they switched the regular traffic light bulbs, which were halogen, and they burn out and it causes lots of people to they have to take down the intersection. They got to get a lift up there. They got to replace the bulb. And if you put an LED bulb into a traffic light, it will last for like five or 10 years. And there's just everything is better about these LED, except that they didn't realize that when it snows the old light bulbs got hot enough that it would melt the snow off. Oh, the new ones, they don't get hot enough. So they would, these LED lights would just be covered in snow. And no one could see what's going on. So they fixed it. And uh, he just like went through this incredible history. And it's so fascinating how it works. He has another one on how closed captioning works. So in old TV, what would happen is that there would just be a, like one little strip. And if you watch it, he's like, you probably can remember your old TV having this little black and white strip sometimes you thought it was glitching out. That's the captions. And your TV can can read those and turn them into captions. And it's still used today. And I I was like, yeah, right. And so I downloaded a movie and played it on my 4K TV. And the captions just worked because they were baked into the actual video file. Because I always thought captions were like a separate they can like, be, yeah. They, they are be. like I have yeah. them for S-R-T my own file. courses. Yeah. But you can you can bake those into the video file directly. Yeah.
0: Just think you can do that with handbrake even. Really? Yeah.
1: It makes sense. I should do that with my courses because then I don't have to like have a separate file. It it just comes with the video file. Yeah. Other ones they went. His most popular video is how the PlayStation 1 copy protection worked Mm. and how mod chips worked. I always wonder that like how do mod chips work? Like what are mod chips doing? Yeah. Super interesting. And then the last one I had was LED printers. So not laser printers, but LED printers. Are I did not even heard so of that. There's just all kinds of laser disc, VHS, copy protection. I remember when I was a kid, one of my friend's parents would rent movies and then they had two VCRs and then they would did pipe it? one VCR into another. Copy them? But then, then it would like go all wonky. And I was always like, how do they know? Like, What's the copy protection in a VHS tape? And uh, he explains how that all works. So, man, absolutely love this this YouTube channel. It's a nugget. It's like 250,000 subscriptions right now. So I'd say it's relatively undiscovered so far. Technology connections.
0: I'm going to be, this is right up my alley in terms of stuff. I like to watch at (laughs) night to like wind down. I've been watching like a channel that just does every single Super Nintendo video game they talk about and it's so boring it puts me to sleep every night they're just like talking about some (laughs) video game I don't care about this looks like something I'm going to be watching every night
1: yeah there's literally hundreds of them or not hundreds he probably has 70 different ones and then he just put out one as why does the secure digital you know like your little memory card yeah why is the d on the secure digital have a disc it's not Mm. a disc I'll I'll let you watch that one it's kind of interesting
0: Well, I just I just smashed that subscribe button so hard. I think I broke the dumb.
1: (laughs) All right. Shameless plugs today. What do you got? Uh, I
0: have uh, new courses on Level Up Tutorials. By the time this is coming out, the course for January 2019, the first course of January 19 shall be released. So uh, head on over to LevelUpTutorials.com forward slash pro. Sign up to become a pro and you will get access to every single course that's available on Level Up Tutorials as well as. Uh, Any course that is released this year, if you sign up for the year, you save 25% and you will get 12 additional courses over the course of this year. And let me tell you, I got some doozies planned. I'm starting 2019 off right. And uh, I'm going to (laughs) continue it that way all year long. So check it out. Leveluptutorials.com forward slash pro.
1: Awesome. I'm going to sick pick all of my courses. Westboss.com forward slash courses. If you want to learn JavaScript, CSS, just want to start off 2019. It's probably this is in February, so you're not starting it off. But if you want to learn anything, head on over to westboss.com forward slash courses. And uh, I will hook you up. Bunch of free ones, bunch of paid ones.
0: Yeah. New year, new you.
1: New year, new you. (laughs) Anything else for today?
0: Uh, I got nothing else. Uh, I'm ready. Yeah. Ready to go. Peace. Peace head on over to syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.